0: Welcome to Linda's Corner. My name is Linda Bjork and today we're going to be talking about recovery and healing for survivors of sexual assault. I'm honored to welcome special guest Annie Parody with me today to talk about this important topic. Annie is a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of Utah and works extensively helping survivors of sexual assault and rape. She is passionate about helping trauma survivors heal and discover their power and true selves. And she believes that healing is possible for everyone. Welcome, Annie. Thank you so much for joining with me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Oh, I am so excited. I have so many questions and so many things. I feel like my head is going to burst. Um, First of all, I just wanted to say I love the name Survivor. In the olden days, they used to call people who endured this kind of a thing a victim. And although it is true, at the time when the event occurred, a person doesn't have to stay a victim. And author Chanel Miller, she uh, is also a survivor of sexual assault, and she said, I am a victim. I have no qualms with this word, only with the idea that it's all that I am. And she talked about how she doesn't want to be defined by that. She doesn't want to be labeled by that. She wants to be able to move on. And I love the name survivor it just even the word is like empowering to survive means to continue to exist in spite of danger or hardship and it implies that life doesn't end when a person has been sexually assaulted a person can recover and heal and have a beautiful powerful life and your job is to help people be able to do that so thank you so can we talk about that healing process what does it look like
1: yeah, of course. So uh, I, I agree. I love the term survivor because a uh, victim can be so, um, I don't know, it can make us feel trapped and in that role. Exactly. And, weak. Um, and instead, survivor is taking your power back. Um, the recovery process for healing and moving on through sexual assault or rape or sexual abuse is a bit of a long one it can take quite a bit of time um but i've seen it be possible for so many individuals Uh, a lot of the time it's first labeling what you experienced as sexual assault or rape or abuse a lot of um women i've worked with and even men are like i experienced this thing and it made me feel uncomfortable and i'm having a lot of negative reactions from it but I don't know what to call it. Like, it feels too strong to say it's sexual assault or sexual abuse. And then we get talking and it's very clear to me as a therapist that, yeah, they were assaulted or abused and their power was taken away in that moment. Um, And so the recovery process is helping them identify it as abuse and then helping them take back their power. Um, helping them say that wasn't okay. And here's how I can move forward from
0: that. Oh, that's fantastic. It is so interesting that it is about power. And that is such an, an intimate, personal violation. And it is prevalent, unfortunately. And like you said, not everybody is even aware or can label that that is what happened. Just something isn't right. And I have many friends, unfortunately, who have been victims of sexual assault to some degree or other and have had different responses and effects depending on the severity and how it was, how it was handled or how they were able to treat it. For example, I have one friend, I'll call her Mary, and she was molested uh, by a neighbor when she was a child. But she immediately went and told her parents and they were able to address it right away. They talked to him, he apologized to her and to her parents, he got counseling, he was able to, um, you know, get himself in a better place, and although this event happened, she really doesn't have any, any long-term effects from it at all. She can talk about it with no more emotion than, yeah, I remember that time I broke my leg, kind of a thing. And then I have another friend, and I'll call her Beth, and she was assaulted as a child, but it was so traumatic I, when we talked about it and I said, why didn't you tell your parents? Because it happened multiple times. And she said, you don't understand. It was so traumatic. And I was so young that my brain literally blocked it out. And I did not remember it. And it was not until she was an adult married with kids that it started to come back. Is that a common thing to just forget and to block things out? Because it's not the only person I know that's that's happened to.
1: Um, It can be an experience that a lot of people have. I, I would say it's not the norm. It's not like the most prevalent way that people experience it. But I have worked with people where they're like, oh, I just, you know, chalked it up to that's normal or, you know, I didn't think about it, or it was so traumatic that I couldn't think about it. I couldn't remember it. Um, And a lot of it will depend on the age of the um, individual when they were assaulted. Um, If you're assaulted later in life, you're much more likely to remember more than if you're much younger.
0: So if someone is in that spot where they don't remember, because I have another friend who was having some health issues and also some emotional issues. And when she was visiting with her counselor, her counselor said, you know, the things that you are dealing with are actually usually attributed to a childhood trauma. Did anything ever happen to you? And she said, oh, no, I don't think so. And then and then all of a sudden a name popped into her head, and it was a relative and and tiny little pieces of, of memories and images. And she still hasn't fully remembered it, she, how do you, how do you, is there a way to get that out so that you can process it and get rid of it?
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes you don't even have to fully remember it. There's a book by Bessel van der Kolk called The Body Keeps the Score, and it talks about how those memories, even if we don't have more narrative memory of this happened and that happened, and then another thing happened, we remember it in our bodies we have reactions emotions and responses and you can treat it through just managing those reactions and responses so one of my favorite trauma therapies is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing uh, or emdr and i love that because we don't have to have narrative memory we could just say the name of that person And notice how it feels in your body and what emotions come up for you when you think about that person or any little snippet of memory that you have and you're able to process through it, even if you don't have, again, the full narrative memory. And so I love that because you don't have to go digging and be like, okay, what is it? What actually happened? You can say, I know something happened and I want to heal and move on and sometimes more parts of the memory come to the surface as you do EMDR, and other times it's just cleared out without needing to remember the full experience.
0: Oh, that's wonderful, because then you don't have to dig through all the garbage, and I think the less required digging, the better, and I'm so glad that you mentioned this tool, because I saw in your bio that you wrote about it, but I'm not familiar with it at all, so will you please teach me, because I love learning about tools that work.
1: Yes, yes, I love this. So this tool has been around, I want to say, for 30 plus years, and it has been shown repeatedly to be effective at healing trauma and helping people recover from any abuse or assault or traumas that they experienced. Um, It's kind of, uh, well, where to start? (laughs) There's so much about it. Um, So eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, the idea is that you have a memory that is traumatic and it's stored in your brain. And we talk about it as kind of being frozen, locked with the same thoughts, um, smells, sights, sensations, emotions. And so anytime you have something that feels similar, you get triggered and your body reacts as if you're back in that traumatic memory so with EMDR we pick that target memory and we gather all of this information okay when you think of that memory what's the worst part when you think of that memory and that picture um, what's the negative belief that you start to think about yourself then we say what would you prefer to believe about yourself instead of that negative belief and then we ask I think a very crucial question of how true does that positive statement feel when you think of the memory? So you might have an experience and the negative belief is I'm not good enough. And what you wanna believe is I am good enough. But when you think about the memory, that positive statement of I'm enough or I'm good enough feels completely false. Then we explore what emotions come up when you think of this memory. What physical sensations and how disturbing is this memory to you on a scale of zero to 10? Where zero is no disturbance or neutral and 10 is the highest disturbance you can imagine. So we gather all of this information, again, trying to identify what is locked inside of this memory. And then we pair it with eye movements. And uh, basically you're moving your eyes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. and What we think is happening is similar to what happens during rapid eye movement or REM sleep, that the eye movements are helping to reprocess all of this material we just gathered. Um, We we also can use tapping. Uh, So it's called bilateral stimulation. You wanna just make sure that both parts or both halves of your body are being stimulated. And the idea is when a trauma occurs, uh, usually the prefrontal cortex or the thinking part of our brain shuts off, as well as parts uh, in our left hemisphere, which are the language centers of our brain. So we often say like, "Ah, something's happening. I don't feel comfortable. But we don't always have the words to describe what is happening for us. And so, again, doing the bilateral stimulation activates both hemispheres of your brain and, again, helps to process that material, that trauma.
0: That is amazing. And how many sessions or how long is a session and how many does it take or or does that depend on severity? But is there kind of a a, ballpark figure?
1: Yeah, there is a ballpark figure. So ideally, EMDR sessions should be 90 minutes. Uh, With a lot of insurance and different things, you're uh, stuck with 50-minute sessions. Um, And so that may affect how many sessions you need. Uh, For one uh, isolated trauma, they say it takes about three to five sessions to clear that out. If you have a long history of trauma that's all interconnected, it's going to take a lot longer, right? Because you're gonna have to work through each distinct experience, as well as all of the connections you've made over that time. So I've seen some individuals come in and they're in and out of my office within two months, right? Other clients I've worked with for several years and we're still working and digging through their trauma.
0: Wow, several years. Yeah. So, but I'm assuming that there's progress and improvement as you go throughout. Yeah. That is amazing. Okay. So it takes a couple of months at the, at the minimum to be able to work through this kind of a thing. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. That is, that's really cool. And it works yeah. and you've seen it work and people are doing great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen it work both personally for my own trauma, as well as professionally as the therapist uh, providing that treatment.
0: Wow. And it's really cool. I love tools that work. I, I just think that that's wonderful. And um, and I love that that it, you don't have to carry it forever, that you can let it go. Mm-hmm. Because yes. a lot of these things, they they're so personal. They're so intimate. They're so deeply affected in the psyche of feelings like I'm not good enough, or I'm unworthy, or I am dirty, or I am... Something along that line um, yeah. that can affect everything, all of your other relationships, all of yeah. all of everything that you do. So nice to be able to move forward. You're doing a great, great thing. Oh, I love it. Okay. Well, let's talk about another thing too, if that's okay. Yeah. I have a an, another friend who experienced a date rape, yeah. and it left her feeling. You talked at the beginning how some people are not able to define it and label it, and she very much was not able to label or define it because she not only felt violated and, you know, dirty and all of those things, but also really, really confused, like, wait a minute, what just happened? Did I say okay to this? Did I give in? Was I seduced? I don't think so. I don't feel like I had a choice, but, you know, I did it, so I must have, you know what I mean? Yeah. So what is, um, what is consent?
1: Yeah. It, consent is tricky, um, but only because it's become so convoluted in people's minds. It's pretty simple if you get down to it. Um, only a person who is in the right mind, who's awake, can say yes. If we feel coerced, uh, which is something negative is going to happen if I don't say yes. That's not consent. That's not truly like from the core of me. I'm okay with this. I want this. Um, There's a great video. It is a little explicit in the language department, but um, it's, I want to say tea and consent, and it relates um, how you would treat offering someone tea to sexual consent. Now, if someone says, yes, you know, I think I'd like some tea. And then later says, uh, you know what, I don't actually want that anymore. You wouldn't force it down their throat and say, but you said you wanted it. So you have to drink it. You'd say, oh, okay, you changed your mind. You don't want tea anymore. But with sex, we act like, oh, if, if I agreed to a date or if I agree, agreed to kiss the person, then it must somehow be my fault that they took that as saying yes to having sexual activity. It doesn't, right? Consent is required for each distinct aspect and part of it, and consent can be withdrawn at any point. So you could say, oh, you know what? I'm into this person. This feels good. I'm having a good time. And so you might begin making out with them and then realize uh you know what this is going further than i want you have every right to say i'm done i'm out um i don't want this anymore and at that moment the other person should stop if they do not stop you are not consenting um you are communicating i don't want this anymore I think for a lot of survivors, it also gets confusing because of our fight or flight response. That moment we realize, I don't want this, but do I feel safe enough to say no? Sometimes our body freezes, or if we've tried to communicate and say, no, I don't want this, and the person continues to push or pressure or coerce us, our body might say, the safest thing for me to do right now is to freeze, is to play along, is to just wait and hope it ends soon. Oh, dear. Um, and that's where I think a lot of survivors feel guilty or feel like, did I somehow say it was okay by not continuing to fight? If you didn't want it, um, that was assault. <laughs> it's clear. Um. That if you communicated, if you said, I am not interested in this anymore, and it was not respected, and your body went into, I need to keep myself as safe as I can, and that might be freezing, that's still sexual assault, even if you didn't continue to fight or to say no.
0: And I think that type of a problem um, Mm -hmm. sometimes helps, or help is not a good word, but makes it so that a person who has been a victim once can become a victim again, because they think, okay, I just have to freeze and just get it over with because, you know, not good things are going to happen. And, and that's, because I I know a couple people where that has been the case, where once a, a pattern has been established, it continues. Yeah. And that's, that's horrible. I think for, for a healthy person who is, in, in a good place, you know, mentally and whatever, I think we need to train a little bit of assertiveness and that idea to say no like we mean it. Mm-hmm. I don't think a, a lot of times we want to just keep people happy and um, we don't want any conflict. And so we, we go along with things that we shouldn't. But that doesn't, of course, change anything that shouldn't have taken place. But I think it's empowering for for people Assault can happen to men and women, but I think it happens more often to women. To to say it's it's okay to say no.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is a really big problem. Um I attended a training just a little bit ago about people pleasing and perfectionism and how as women, we often are trained <laughs> through society and culture and family and friends to be quiet, to be soft to not rock the boat too much. And that training can get really confusing when we're in a, a romantic situation or a dating or uh, even a marriage where we're like, well, I'm supposed to you know, be nice and please my partner and uh, participate in this, but I don't want to. It's confusing. And I think assertiveness training would be a great resource to uh, women as well as men who have been uh, assaulted or um, who are survivors of sexual assault and rape because being able to say no and say no confidently and assertively does help protect you. And at the same time, it may not prevent sexual assault or rape because those who want to hurt you will hurt you regardless.
0: Wow. And that is unfortunately very true, which is a really frustrating situation. So I guess our our first step is to be assertive and to do the best Mm -hmm. that we can and to be in the right place at the right time. Don't ask for it by being in a situation that is not safe. And then the second is if something does happen, let's fix it.
1: Yeah, and I I think we need to be clear that even making out on someone's bed is not asking to be sexually assaulted. Uh, Even dressing um, with fewer clothing or even being naked with someone, if you say no or feel like you don't want to go on, you're not asking for it. You may be in a more dangerous situation, um, but you're... Feelings should be respected no matter what.
0: You're still in charge of you. You're you're yeah. in charge of your person. You're in charge of your body. And you have a right to say no. Yes. And and it sounds like that's one of your key messages is that you have a right mm-hmm. to say no. And, yeah. and if that right was violated, then that wasn't appropriate. Fantastic. This is amazing. Is there anything else specifically that you wanted to make sure that we covered?
1: I think I would want to say to anyone who has been hurt, been traumatized, but there is hope in healing. That you do not have to carry those scars with you forever. Um, just as our body heals itself, our mind and our emotions, we can heal from it. It will take time and it will take acknowledging that, hey, what happened to me wasn't okay. Um, but If you do that, you can find happiness on the other side as a survivor. And in identifying as a survivor, you can help so many other people. Um, If that feels good for you, if that feels like part of your healing journey, to reach out and support other uh, women and men who have been hurt.
0: And then it, it makes something good that can come out of something that is bad. Yes. And that's always, I don't know. There's, there's something kind of beautiful about that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining with me today, Annie. In closing, I'd like to share a quote by author and rape crisis counselor, Robert Utaro. He said, but no matter how much evil I see, I think it's more important for everyone to understand that there is much more light than darkness. Today, I invite everyone to look for and embrace Light. And for those listening who have endured any kind of sexual assault, I invite you to seek healing and become the survivor you were meant to be. See you next time on Linda's Corner.